Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, for Lent this year, we have uh, we've been reading together about Jesus' last days. We have been uh, reading together about the things that happened during that last week between the triumphal entry into the holy city and the last meal that he ate with his friends. And this morning, uh, we're going to read together about something that happened right before that last meal. Uh, it was another meal, actually, a different meal, the uh, last supper before the last supper. So I'm going to read from Matthew 26 for us, verses 6 through 16. It's printed in the order of worship if you want to follow along there, or you can just listen as I read from Matthew 26. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would uh, use this word that we have read and heard together, this, this story of this woman that Jesus promised would be told forever in memory of her, that you'd use it to meet us in whatever places we are this morning in whatever places we find ourselves, um, would you meet us and show us the grace of Jesus again and change us by it? And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I am, uh, I'm guessing that most of us here this morning uh, know the story of Henny Penny. Uh, you've probably heard it, even if you don't remember the details about the story of Henny Penny. Some of us might have called her Chicken Lickin', but the story is the same. Henny Penny is at home uh, doing whatever it is that chickens do at home, and an acorn hits her on the head, and this convinces her that the sky is falling. And so she starts off on a journey to tell the king that the sky is falling. And along the, the way, she meets with these other animals, she convinces all of these other animals that the sky is falling, and they join her on that journey to meet with the king, to tell him that the sky is falling. And in their journey, they meet Foxy Loxy. Now, he is the bad guy in the story. He hears what it is that they're saying. He invites them to take a shortcut through the mountain to get to the king. And that shortcut is, of course, his cave. And he eats all of them. <laughs> and that is the end of the story. And uh, I have no idea what the point of that story is. But I do know that the story that we just read and heard together 
is like the beautiful inverse of Henny Penny's story, in part because the woman at the heart of this story is not mistaken. The sky really is falling. So she starts out on her journey to the king, but instead of stopping to convince anyone else along the way, she brushes past everyone else like they're not even there. She slips past a dozen foxy loxies with all of their schemes and their correctness and their judgments of her. And she heads straight to the king until she finds him, and instead of some kind of horrible end, the king tells her that she has done something beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, so deeply and exquisitely true that people will remember her forever. And unlike, uh, unlike the story of Henny Penny, the church has always been pretty sure what the point of this story is. Once we find our place in this story, people like you and me, we have to ask ourselves the same question that our mothers and fathers in the faith have been asking when they hear this story about this beautiful woman. As open-handedly as we can, we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus worth to me? So no matter where we are in faith or uh, outside of faith, if that's the case for us, her story settles in beside our own stories, asking questions of us, unsettling us, lifting us up, pointing us towards life. So the beginning of uh, chapter 26 has marked a significant shift in that last week in Jesus' life. Verses 1 through 5, we didn't read them, uh, but even though we didn't read them, it's important for us to know about it because Jesus says two really important things to the disciples right after he finishes a long block of teaching. First, he reminded the disciples that the Passover was just two days away. Now, of course, the disciples knew that Passover was coming soon. Jerusalem was crowded with pilgrims just like them who had come to the holy city to celebrate Passover. The preparations for for Passover were evident all around them. The people that had crowded into the city, the mood of the city itself, all of that is part of what made Jesus last week so tense and so beautiful and so deeply filled with meaning, which takes us to the second thing that Jesus told his disciples, which is that he was going to be delivered up to be crucified. (laughs) Now, uh, of course, they had heard Jesus tell them several times, about his death. A couple of times when Jesus told the disciples about it, they balked at it. They told him to stop talking about stuff like that. That did not work out so well as Simon Peter learned in a painful way. So mostly when Jesus talked about his death now, they had stopped responding at all. They either found it so intolerable or so confusing that most times it went in one ear and out the other. And this is the irony that Matthew paints into the story of this last week. It is incredibly important irony. They're in Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem to celebrate this great deliverance, this great deliverance that came because of the death and the blood of the Passover lamb. And they are in Jerusalem with the Passover lamb. 
with the one whose death, whose blood will mark the forgiveness of sins and the deliverance of the whole broken world. And they don't know it. The sky is falling and they have no idea. And I think that's pretty great. I think it's pretty great, not that they had no idea, but that we, we get to hear about it and we get to see it again. Martin Luther liked to point out that the frequent failures of the disciples teach us about Jesus' grace. He is so patient with them and his forgiveness is so wide. And nothing about, nothing about him has ever changed, church, not with them and not with people like us either. He is so patient with people like us. His forgiveness is so wide for people like us. And that's worth keeping in mind while this story plays out. So they're having dinner at Bethany, which was where Jesus spent his evenings during that last week. And they're in the house of Simon the leper. I mean, if there is a better uh, setup in the Gospels, I don't know what it is. I mean, what a nickname this guy has. Now, it's fair to say that he, uh, he doesn't currently have that particular affliction, that particular uh, skin disease that was called leprosy. Not that that would have kept Jesus from him, mind you. The very first specific miracle, the very first miracle that Matthew describes in detail in his gospel is the healing of a leper. So don't get it wrong. Jesus doesn't stay away from lepers. <laughs> he moves towards them and he heals them. But Simon, Simon the leper wouldn't have been hosting a meal for folks. He wouldn't have had people in his home if he was currently afflicted. And so there is something uh, painful about that nickname and something beautiful about it too. Just can't seem to get away from his past. And Jesus doesn't care. <laughs> he flies to places like that. He, so, of course, while the high priests are over in the temple purifying themselves, getting themselves ready to celebrate the Passover, of course, Jesus steps through the door of Simon the leper's house. <laughs> it may be Jesus last week, but he is definitely going to go out like he came in eating and drinking with all of the wrong people, spending time with the outsiders, perpetually headed to the places where shame and pain are. And church, it's good news for me, it's good news for you, it's good news for this whole broken world that he is like that. It's good news lived out in flesh and blood with a fork and a spoon and wine and bread. Jesus shows up and says, let's eat. <laughs> And that setup does not disappoint. Out of nowhere, silently, swiftly, a woman comes into the room. Matthew doesn't tell us her name. He doesn't tell us what she looks like. Doesn't tell us what she said or if she said anything at all. Instead, Matthew tells us what it is that she's carrying. An alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She's carrying something that most families would cherish as a kind of a safety net. Something that most uh, families would want to pass down, hopefully unused for generations, because the contents were valued at about 300 denarii. That's about a, a year's wage for the average person. And if you were really hard up, you know, like if, you're, if your husband or your sons, they got sick or God forbid they died, 
you could sell that. And you could scrape by as long as you could until you could figure something else out. So that's what she has in her hands. She has her safety in her hands. She has her security in her hands. And there in front of all of the disciples before they could stop her, before they could talk her out of it, she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. And in a space of seconds, it's done. The thing is empty. The ointment is now flowing down through Jesus' hair and over his eyebrows and his eyes and and across the bridge of his nose and down the back of his neck and across his back. It is dripping down through his beard and onto his shoulders. And that room is filled with a smell so pungent and beautiful, a smell that people only got to experience maybe once or twice in their whole lives. She asked Jesus for absolutely nothing. She only gives to him, and he only accepts. It is an act of uncalculated and extravagant devotion, an act of generosity. Jesus is worth this. It is an act of love. And when his disciples saw it, they, uh, they indignantly did the math. And they decided almost immediately that it was nothing but a waste. You can hear their, their theological correctness. And you can hear their sense of moral justice. Both of those things finely tuned, impeccably tuned. This could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. Why this waste? That wasn't worth it. And church, I'm not sure that her story does us any good if we can't or if we won't see ourselves in the response of the disciples. I mean, I put myself in that house smelling that that smell and seeing the kind of devotion and seeing the kind of unbridled love that makes me uncomfortable. And I wonder if I wouldn't have hidden behind some kind of correctness just like the disciples did. I mean, Jesus has just taught them. Literally, the last thing that he taught them at the end of chapter 25 is that he identifies with the poor. (laughs) When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? And Jesus says to them, truly, I tell you, when you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So there's that and all of Jesus' teaching and all of Scripture's teaching on caring for the poor. And on this, at least, the disciples are not wrong. That ointment definitely could have been used differently than it was used. And that's part of the point. There are things that people like us might value. There are things that people like us do value, right? Like having the right politics. It doesn't matter which politics you have. I'm sure you think it's right. Or having having a good theology. Or having the correct intellectual take on a certain issue swirling around whatever the issue is or having a sense and a practice of moral justice, there are things that we value and things that we have when they are not properly ordered in our lives by faith that can be used to cause real harm to other people. And that's the truth. 
and it's real. And it has caused, and it causes great harm to people pretty much every day because this is what self-righteousness does. And some days, I feel like self-righteousness is the fuel that our culture runs on, and it's killing us. It's killing us. (laughs) Because it is the anti-love. And self-righteousness is what happens when in practice, when in practice we value anything more than we value Jesus and then we order our lives according to that messed up priority of values. But man, Jesus is so patient and his forgiveness is so wide. And so in order to invite his disciples and to invite us into a very different way of thinking things and of seeing things, he asked, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Jesus is uh, alluding to Deuteronomy 15 here. So I want to read uh, Deuteronomy 15, 11 in full because it's really important. This is what it says. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother and to the needy and to the poor in your land. Jesus is not, when he says this, deprioritizing care for the poor. What he's doing, in fact, is alluding to one of the many places in in Scripture that uphold our duty to it. It remains the task of the faithful church and of faithful Christian people to care for the poor. What Jesus is doing is reordering the disciples' objection in light of himself. He is reordering their values. You will not always have me. Which is another way of saying the thing that they don't hear or the thing that they can't hear or the thing that they will not hear when he says it and that is that he is going to die. The sky really is falling. In pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And slowly then, for people like us, for the disciples in the room, for Simon the leper watching, this woman's extravagant and costly and prodigal act of devotion comes into focus. She didn't know it, neither did any of the men in that room, but all that ointment spilling down over Jesus, running down and pooling on the floor, sinking into the earth of the floor. All of that was a pointer to an even more beautiful and more extravagant and more prodigal act of devotion that Jesus pours out for people like us. In a twist that we would never write, in a, in a, in a twist that we could never anticipate, in news that is so good that we find it hard to believe even on our best days. Jesus finds people like you and me worth everything. And so he pours all of it out. 
everything that he has. He, he pours himself out for us. His death, his resurrection, his ascension make a way for us to be forgiven and restored and remade into the people that he created us to be. His death and resurrection and ascension make a way for this whole world, this whole broken world to be reconciled to the Father. And church, this is what makes Jesus the one who is worth all that we have. And the one around whom all other things in our lives and everything else that we value is rightly and properly ordered. And once we've done that, once we have gotten that straight, that love straight, then all the other stuff in our lives falls into proper place. And as we remain in him, we are safely kept from all of that other stuff that would grind us and everyone around us into the ground. All that self-righteousness we thought we were stacking up. All that self-righteousness we were piling up with our cherished orthodoxies and our, and our great big thoughts about everything and our sterling moral practices. All of that self-righteousness becomes suddenly and gloriously unnecessary because by faith we cling to the one who gave us his righteousness, which is an always will be the only righteousness that ever mattered in the first place. And what that leaves in the hands of people like us is love. Love for the one who loved us first. Love for the one who loved us before we even knew that's what we needed. Love for the one who loved us before we were even out looking for it. And who knows, you know, who knows what objectively excessive and costly acts of love and devotion that might lead people like us to do in his name and by his power for others. Who knows where that kind of love might lead us? I don't know, but the life of faith in Jesus is a life of finding out where it might lead us. So in faithfulness to Jesus, we listen to her story again and we remember her. And her story always comes with an epilogue. It is Judas' story. I don't know, maybe he had finally heard Jesus in that room. Maybe he had finally taken him seriously about dying, and Judas decided, I don't know, maybe this is not the Jesus that I really want. And so he slips away. And as he slips away, he figures out what Jesus is worth to him. And it is almost nothing, 30 pieces of silver. And betrayal is now only a kiss away. Matthew tells these stories to us side by side for a reason, because they are an invitation. Both of these stories side by side are an invitation for us to find our places in them and head as fast as we can towards life. Jesus is so patient. And his forgiveness is so wide. So follow him if you haven't. Stay with him if you have. Come back if you have wandered away. Let me pray for us. Father, with, with the psalmist, uh, we ask, what could we possibly render to you? for all of the benefits that you have given us. 
So we ask, Father, that you um, would help us to be a people who ask that question and who answer it in the only way possible, which is that your love calls out our love and our devotion for you and for this broken world around us. Father, teach us this lesson again so that we would uh, mature and grow and strengthen in our faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.